Welcome to episode 113 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I chat with Dr. Rich Shivener. There was one point after that, like, somebody who had like 100 people watching them write and writing with them, doing like writing Pomodoro timers and stuff, they rated the channel. I was like, I have 100 people, like, I have to be interesting. You know, so like, <laughs> it was very unnerving, I think, at that when that happened. But like, it has really prompted me to think about what I say when I'm right and I'm talking through my process. And I think other just another takeaway, really, more than a highlight is Twitch is a performative space, right? You're like, you're doing something with writing that is interesting potentially for other people. Dr. Rich Shivner is an assistant professor in the writing department at York University. His latest research investigates digital media writing practices and emotions, and he teaches courses in the department's digital cultures stream. Rich is also a section editor for Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, and pedagogy. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in journals such as Enculturation, Computers and Composition, and College English. He takes pride in collaborating with colleagues and teaching a range of rhetoric and writing inquiries. I hope you enjoy the interview. What's your name, your title, and your institution, your role there? Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> yes, I am Rich Scheibner. I'm an assistant professor of writing in the writing department at York University. And I can't remember what else you asked me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I could do it over again. Sorry. Whatever. That's okay. You're good. Yeah. We can leave this yeah. in. What do you do there? What sir, kind sir. of classes do you teach? Are what you part of graduate there? faculty? Stuff like that. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a little uh, scatterbrained just because I'm beginning my classes next week, teaching them. So I teach right. mostly in digital cultures classes, like uh, writing in digital cultures, intermediate digital authoring. And this year I'm teaching digital authoring practicum, which is a fourth year course for our professional writing majors. And uh, I'm also teaching research for professional writing this year. So it's a first year course that focuses on research methods for professional writing majors as they, they first start. So we'll cover interviews and surveys. And what's the other one we're doing? Oh yeah, just um, sort of observation, primary, like secondary research, things like that. Um, but mainly around contentious writing and writing that is sort of is angered and helps people kind of organize and protest and things of that sort. But mainly those kind of classes, mixing the kind of theoretical with the practical. And then um, when I'm not doing that, I'm working on research, just right now finishing up a book and uh, got a couple other articles sort of in the can. And mainly all of that is gravitated around like emotion studies um, and digital rhetoric. So I love doing interviews just like on this podcast and I love making sense of them, you know, um, and if I could do it out in the world, you know, uh, safely, you know, I, I will, uh, because I love, I love speaking with people. What, what types, I want to learn more about this practicum class. That sounds really cool. Um, yeah. what, what kind of like assignments or projects 
do the students in that class um, create and produce? And what are some of like the goals or learning objectives, if, if you will, that you're trying to meet with a class like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have taught part of it one time um, around, I think like it was about the second year of first year of the pandemic or so. And mainly what it is, is they are doing um, a full year class. So that's in the Canadian system, it's about 24 weeks uh, because we do 12 week terms. And what we begin to do is build up a portfolio where anything that they've been learning in previous classes, um, you know, designing, doing some web design and coding, uh, doing a little bit of audio and video mixing with text and so forth, all those projects, they're going to recap those, kind of get their portfolio material ready, essentially apply the theories they've learned um, with respect to like digital rhetoric and, and writing. And then in the second term, after, you know, after having sort of caught up, caught their breath a bit, um, built up their portfolios, the second term that is winter, they're going out and applying that work with community partners. So it could be internal, but most of the time it's external partners. And so they might say, I need help with a campaign to further recruit um, youth to an educational program we're putting on or a camp or something of that sort. Um, or they might say, you know, I'm working with a nonprofit company on video games. And what I have to develop for them is a technical communication guide with video as, as much as text. Um, so it's very applied. And typically the model that we follow, we've been following lately with my colleagues is placement. So it's one student or two students, a small team, if you are working with community partners. Um, so it gets them that kind of uh, placement, you know, practical experience out in the fields. And then we use the classroom to workshop and share kind of our progress as we go. Kind of like you would do in a, you know, um, graduate practicum for for uh, like PhD students and master's students teaching like first year writing or something like that. It's very cool. That is cool. Do the students enjoy those types of community engaged projects? I mean, they've, a number of them, when I taught it uh, a winter, a few winters ago, they often wanted to continue working in the summer and were saying, you know, I hope I can find a job with this particular company or something. Uh, but at the very least, what they enjoyed about it was having like a number of portfolio pieces that they could show off at the end of the class, um, not only to me and to like, their peers, but also to potential employers uh, and to say like, look, I, I did this long-term project for 24 weeks um, while I was building up my, my sort of skills and then 12 weeks, every week speaking with a community partner and I know how to work with feedback with, you know, clients we sometimes say and so forth. And um, so it's, it's very much weighing the practical part of what like our, I guess our curriculum has been for the digital culture stream. And um, I'm excited to get back to starting to it actually Monday this coming week. So that'll be interesting. Are you from Canada? <laughs> I am not, but I have roots. My wife is Canadian. So we met a number of years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, and um, I've been up a number of times. So I am a permanent resident now, but my wife's Canadian and my son is a dual citizen. So we're we are like a, a very fun family and you know, small family. Where are you from? I'm from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, actually. So I... 
Um, did all of my schooling there from basically, you know, kindergarten to PhD and thought I'd probably stay there, but I went in the job market and, um, you know, just applied for like a million jobs. I think it was like 70 plus something like that. Oh yeah. And yeah. Right. <laughs> I was I get so tired of looking at that spreadsheet. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, shout out to Jim Rodolfo for rep map and all the oh, amazing yeah. things that comes from it. But uh, my own spreadsheets and yes or no, maybe all that stuff, the waiting I was very lucky to get um, in with York in an interview with them. And then, you know, we sort of got to talking and said, okay, look, like we spent most of our life in my life here in this city. I have family here, all that sort of stuff. Um, I've worked here, you know, 30 plus years or not, well, lived and worked here 30 plus years, I should say. And um, yeah, it's time to go for a change. So we uprooted and was really lucky that York uh, supported our moves and immigration and all that sort of stuff. And it was a, it was a great program, very hard to, um, to pass up. That's interesting, um, especially the way that you frame it, right? Uh, 30 years, like in one spot. That's exactly how I think about when I left my hometown of Birmingham. Like I was there 30 years, you know, it's, it's yeah. weird. It's really weird. <laughs> Yeah. And when you start sharing the news with people, like I'm going to be moving, not only am I going to be moving, but I'm going to be moving to another country. You know, mind you, like it's still in the same like, right. continent, but you're like, I'm going to be, you're going to have to like bring your passport. If you don't have your passport, you can't come see me, you know, <laughs> like, um, so there was a lot of like sort of stuff we had to think through pretty carefully at first. And, um, I just remember sitting down with my advisors and they're like, this looks like a job that'd be right. What you've always wanted to do and study and you've been interested in. So it was, it's a real dream. How are you adjusting to life in Toronto? Which I assume is, is a little bit different than Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, it's great. Uh, we were here for, we moved in July, 2019. And, you know, it was a great first summer. My son was like two and a half at the time. We just did everything outside. Like, I think for most people, you know, back then, like life was grand. It was just like, ah, oh, it's a fun summer. And then it was like March, uh, you know, it started hearing whispers in January 2020 of like the pandemic and COVID. And um, suddenly all the things that I was doing in my office it's just taken away. We're like, go home. You're not, yeah. you can't be here. Um, and so really the last like two years or so, we're like, I guess like a little rough. Cause like for a lot of people, you know, we're just sort of contained our homes. Right. For us up here, like um, vaccines and all that sort of stuff were like later than what, what I would see with like my friends in the U S. And so, you know, because up here, like with um, the sort of a social healthcare system, you know, if everybody gets sick, all the hospitals are in real big trouble. And so really like they sort of like public officials and healthcare uh, experts had to be really cautious with everything. So a lot of times we were just not going back to campus. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, so we spent a, I spent a lot of time on the screen, teaching, doing writing, couldn't do any sort of qualitative research at all, let alone like just go have a drink, you know, down the street or anything like that. Um, so I didn't, I kind of lost like the vibe of the city, you know, and until recently recovered that. Right. Um, and I, again, it, it, 
having been having like sort of overcome a couple waves i think the city has and and the, and the region has um and don't get me wrong there are still lots of uh sort of things to to say that are issues out there it's been a great summer as i'll say like um ride my bike again i can go places still very cautious with the masking all that sort of stuff uh, but i think since like march when march 2022 when I started going out and doing field research again and taking like small trips while being cautious, it was a really nice turn just socially, mentally, and physically. So I met you at computers and writing conference. Um, you did. Yeah. And we, was, out. <laughs> we did. That was um, such an important moment for the people that were able to be there. I think to be together again uh, in that community the but, energy there was yeah go ahead sorry no you go ahead yeah that that the energy at that particular conference was amazing and i liked that you could see a number of people wearing masks and being cautious and nobody was you know throwing side eyes or or judging it was just like you know what i accept how you want to go about things i'm going to be cautious when i'm in certain spaces um and then i'm going to be you know we're outside we're hanging out maybe it's a little different but I think overall, regardless of how we approach things, like just the energy was really, really great and refreshing to just see like old friends in the fields um, and meet new folks like yourself. That was so much fun. It was fun. Um, yeah. And it sort of served as a good catalyst for me into this new position as well. Um, so I'm, I'm yeah. really re- being re- quite reflective on that, on that conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I met you. I met a lot of other folks, and I learned about 100 days of writing, mm. uh, a project of yours. What is 100 days of writing? Yes. So, um, it was just an arbitrary number I came up with, honestly. But I said, okay, like, oh wait, you know what? I think at first it was, and then I like looked back in my mind and. I love like Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. And for some reason I was singing that song or was listening to it. And it was like 100 days, 100 nights, right? Like great, great record. Like saw her when that was released. Um, and I was like, what, what else like could you do for like hundred days? I've heard like hundred days of summer. I've heard all these things. And I was like, Oh, like maybe 100 days of writing would be interesting. And I started asking myself, like kind of reverse engineering, like why, you know? And the thing that it stemmed from was, I guess my observations and sort of research that we just as a field can continue to do more behind the scenes work about the scholarly publishing enterprise. So, you know, my colleagues, Cheryl Ball, Douglas Simon, many of the folks have sort of, and even like uh, Christine Tully, number of scholars have begun to sort of peel back those layers even more and, and like looked at the process behind making articles, you know, and web text and so forth. And so I kind of thought, what if I did a public service on Twitch where I just streamed for at least 100 days, 100 days of writing streams where I'm working on the book and I'm going to show you maybe in an unplanned ways. Cause I didn't know what I was doing at first. <laughs> um, what it's like to kind of think through all these choices you have to make with and like failures and hiccups and all that sort of stuff when you're trying to put together a digital book, let alone like an article, let alone just a, 
you know, uh, article meant for a um, print outlet, right? And yeah, I just like looked at what it was like to go on Twitch. I turned on the camera one day and it first started just streaming. I had no plan to market it or anything like that. Like when I started at least, I was like, oh, I can connect it to Twitch really co- or Twitter. Really cool. Um, somebody might just pop in, right? Like I didn't read anything about what makes a good streamer or anything like that. I was just very amateur, like grounded, just I'm going to figure this out as I go. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, I'm going to say. Like, it holds me accountable for my own process. But it also just, like, makes a record of what I did for the day. And I can go back and look at these interesting moments, you know. like, um, But people can, too, right? Like, they can, if they want to sort of look at the quick highlight that I'll sort of make sometimes. I make I make those. They can, but it's largely, like, if they just want to co-work. They can do that too. Um, just somebody who's playing music and writing and talking about their process. Like it just seems to me like something that could be useful for um, fellow writers, brings in some solidarity and um, also just makes transparent the many complexities behind publishing and, and writing. Instead of some long introduction to a very simple question, I'll just sorry. ask a simple question. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about myself. No, okay, okay. oh my gosh, no, I'm leaving I this just, in too. No, I'm talking about I just, myself. I'm I just go. <laughs> go ahead. No, no, yeah. no. Why Twitch? Why Twitch? Yeah, you know, I um probably like a year before. I started streaming and again, mind you, this is like beginning of the pandemic, really, you know, we're looking at a lot of things on demand. Um, I noticed like Twitch is a great space for gaming and watching people play games and building those communities. And it's also a great space for uh, web developers, um, game developers, as well as comics creators and graphic designers so I just noticed more and more that like a range of folks are coming to that space and sharing their work in very like transparent ways, not worrying about copyright, um, trying to be trying to sort of sustaining that culture of openness across different topics. Right. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just try the space. We'll see. I could have done YouTube. Sure, guys. I've seen like author tube and I've seen other things like that. For some reason, Twitch just seemed, yeah, exciting. Like because I was of what I was watching. I was watching and I got the idea um partially for that for that reason. Yeah. Not what, very revelatory, but <laughs> no. what are some of the highlights from the 100 days of writing? Yes. Uh, so I will say a few things that the first probably 30 days, maybe I had one viewer. Um, there's one thing I, in doing the interviews for my book um, right now uh, that I'm wrapping up, like a number of game developers had said, don't try to do it to be popular because you will sit there sometimes for a number of hours and have one person maybe say one thing, whether it's a great thing or a terrible thing they say to you, you might have one viewer. Don't do this for money. Don't do anything like that. And um, so 
I remember doing that, but I never got like too upset about it. I was like, it's mainly just a experiment to learn, you know? So there was that, like, I, I really tried to fight against that. Like, don't get sad if nobody shows up. But um, after that, like, I noticed a highlight for me started to be that if I streamed, this is like a thing that people say like a lot for streaming. If you stream like much more often and very regularly, you will find a community. A community will find you and start sort of uh, coming to talk to you. And I remember it was this past summer I was streaming. I think it was like day 60 plus or something like that. Um, another writer uh, rated me. So as in like they, right. They came in and brought all of their audience to my stream and um, their name is the Tiger Rights. They're awesome. They do uh, streaming every single day almost and for eight hours or more. And uh, it was just, you know, it was like 15 people. It was awesome. I was like, I have a little crowd. This is great. And after that, it kind of started to snowball a bit more. Like people have been coming back. And at one point this past summer too, I got invited to do a live stream for a thing called Writer's Conduit. And um the con being in all caps because it was a free online conference run via Twitch by a community of writers. And I started discovering that like, it actually is a huge community of people who write for small audiences on Twitch. Um, and even now like big audiences, there was one point after that, like so I, as somebody who had like a hundred people watching them write, and writing with them, doing like writing Pomodoro timers and stuff. Right. They rated the channel. And like, I was like, I have a hundred people. Like I have to be interesting. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> um, it was very unnerving. I think at that, when that happened, but like, you know, it, it has really prompted me to think about what I say when I'm right. And I'm talking through my process. And I think other, just another takeaway really more than a highlight is, um, you know, Twitch is a performative space, right? You're like, you're doing something with writing that is interesting potentially for other people. And so sometimes you don't want to do like reading through sources and annotating them, right? Like that's like a, a slow process of you sometimes staring and reading through an article. But if you're like trying to do a writing sprint or you're carefully like reading your lines and editing them, like, that stuff might be interesting to audiences. So it's kind of prompted me to say, what do I do off screen? And then what do I do on screen? And how do I make that like an entertaining sort of thing? Um, which is, again, just not something I have ever thought of. It's so internalized, right? It's behind, like you're by yourself. Writing is a very lonely process. Right. Um, or it can be, I guess. And so, I don't know. I just, one other thing I want to say about that is it's to me more and more as I've sort of, pushed uh maybe against that entertainment idea a little bit oh. or i found that to be like a, a conflict um i've just realized really what people are trying to do i think in the twitch space especially is be part of that community and so to me twitch feels like the new coffee shop when you're writing you're in a space together people are chatting with you yeah. sometimes you're quiet sometimes you're loud with them that's it so that's yeah. cool where can people find yeah. you on Twitch? Yeah. Um, so it, it let me check it. <laughs> the URL. Uh, so it is twitch.tv slash rhetoric rich. And recently I changed that. 
it used to be the rhetoric um but i just felt like yeah the rhetoric was potentially a uh an embodiment of really the white dude suggesting that he is rhetoric and um i think that i i just said you know i that's that has too much like <laughs> historical sort of implications and i was like i, I just want to get rid of that so rhetoric is just sort of like a play on words um for me you know like i, I love things that are all like historically rich or um rhetoric rich like sort of media and things of that sort so i was like i'll just play with this a little bit and it just it just sits better with me in a lot of ways um but really it was just a kind of thoughtless name i put up there like i, I want to be someone known for rhetoric and writing and um yeah so I, I reflected a bit more on that as i sort of started developing this more i appreciate learning more about like those i guess methods you know that as they change over time right um yeah yeah let's talk about your c and c online journal piece mm -hmm. that you just published with jessica de silver uh, a collaborator called yeah. Sharing Pain and Pleasure, a Case Studying Post-Mortems and Game Development Feelings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's start first with this question. Mm -hmm. How did this piece come to be? What's its genesis? Where did it begin? Yeah, um, I love that question. So for what I started doing for my book project right now is I was doing interviews. I've been doing interviews with game developers and, um, you know, interviews take a very long time as I'm sure you've come to understand. And, you know, you, you want to sort of schedule those right. And, and things like that. Uh, and I started thinking, okay, what can I do in addition to these interviews to maybe further understand like what goes on behind the scenes for game developers. And, you know, I had come across these articles known as post-mortem articles in the game development community and developers I'd interviewed had recommended that I turn to those to understand like historically how the development process has changed or what sort of has, you know, a, a number of landmark games like doom or um, wolfenstein 3d things like that um, you know what were their what were the developers thinking at the time even colleagues had suggested like looking at these these articles and so i looked at them and i was like wow i mean they really are just dissecting so many areas of their games in these post-mortem articles and um i've been working with jessica in my classes and I'd hired her as a research assistant my first year. And she did fantastic work um, with me, just helping me sort of write recruitment letters for authors and so forth. And there was an opportunity to do a summer research project um, with an undergraduate and she had applied. I was happy to offer her the position. And I said, okay, instead of doing interviews maybe instead of maybe doing those a little less, why don't we look at this archive of postmortem articles? Because there is research out there on postmortem articles, but not any writing studies sort of framework, rhetoric and writing studies framework. 
And so we just started collecting them and noticed just how much they put their feelings into these descriptions of what went right and what went wrong. And, um, you know, we amassed like more than a hundred of these over the past five years. And that had been published over the past five years, I should say. And, um, I don't know, really, I, I should have answered your question a lot, like more succinctly, but I was interested in these because they reveal so much about what goes on behind the scenes with game development. And I think there's some interesting parallels we can draw between independent game development, especially, and the development of web texts. And so I'm like, this might be an interesting way for us to frame how we discuss our work, right? What would like a postmortem about a web text look like? I don't know. I appreciate the insight into like how you came to work with Jessica and stuff like that. And I think that that's actually at the heart of the question because a lot of the times we don't have the space to talk about how collaboration works and how it came to be and stuff like that uh, in our academic. You have saved me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean that really. Um, So what does the title mean? Sharing pain and pleasure. Uh, pain and pleasure. I just think about like embodied sensations and how those sort of work. And um, I think that there was some, what I, what I kept seeing in these postmortems was if, when people would say what went right with my project, they would use words that were like close to the idea of pain. So they'd say, this is really annoying. Or we found that like we were crunched up in these offices for several hours and overtime, like 12 hours at a time, 24 hours at a time, things like that. And just started to sort of tie that back to, you know, how sort of like uh, ancient rhetoricians like Aristotle would say that um, pain and pleasure is emotion, right? In different ways, like for better or worse, positive, negative, Um, you know, being wronged by another person. things like that. I have to find there, there's a quote that he has like a, a passage he has on that. And I, I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. But um, I was like, that's interesting. It's mainly just this kind of binary. But I think what we suggest here in the article too, is that like you can make those binaries, but oftentimes like feelings and pain and pleasure are mixed simultaneously. We might be saying this is what went right. This is what went wrong. But you know, those sort of things in that right those right and wrong things are happening, um, you know, between breaths really in a lot of ways that is, yeah. Um, that's my like rambling way of getting at what you're asking. <laughs> well, you know, this is admittedly like something that I don't know a whole lot about, but it does lead me to the question. Why is this important right now? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a really great question. And well, two two things. Um what what we argued and we, we argue in this this piece is that um the postmortem article itself hasn't been critiqued or uh thought through sort of critically right. by rhetoric and writing studies. And so by doing this, we're giving folks a potential frame to discuss um, 
you know, there's sort of development processes, whether it's a sort of article intended for print or uh, a digital piece. And to say like using this frame may be an efficient way, an interesting way to present your work and to discuss, you know, the real like sensations and feelings you felt when you were developing it. And I think that that's, you know, a real honest look about the work we do. Um, there's a edited collection um, I recently submitted to, and it was all about revision and what went on when I was working on a particular piece. And I just feel like when you're narrating those processes and those scenes, they're just so ripe with emotion. Yeah. And you feel like a, a lot more connected with the person that you're reading about, whose work you're reading, when they come and bring that those sort of feelings to the page. And I think like oftentimes when I'm reading these posts, it's like someone's not saying like, I'm going to use this emotion today and say, this is really annoying. It's just like a, it's a, it seems like a very natural way of talking, right? Like this went wrong because I had a really annoying piece of code I was working through. Um, and you just learn a lot about how people interact with others, whether it's objects or peers um, through what, by thinking about it through like an emotional frame. Does that make sense? It does. Um, yeah. Is this project, I'm sure it does, feed into your book project? It does. I mean, it, it, I, I'm not talking about postmortems in the book, what, uh, what I've potentially um, worked on. And I'll, I'll just say the book was uh, previously titled Feeling Digital Media, and I'm kind of toying with the title right now as I, okay. as I wrap it up. Um, but what I, what I essentially have done for the book is I interviewed 40-plus um, sort of um, – I'm calling creators because I'm, I've interviewed uh, scholarly creators as well as game development um, and game creators. And I'm using all of those results to tell a story about um, three areas that were the most affectively rich, I'm saying. So it's about um, feedback, collaboration, and delivery, and just making some arguments about interpersonal circulation. So um, this was just a kind of... I don't know. It was like a side project that I just got really interested in because I saw the all that all these postmortems just hadn't been like sort of synthesized critically in the fields, and it gave me a lot of insights into game development. So I think it's like indirectly fed into the book, uh, but yeah, it's not been yeah a critical a key discussion point in it. However, I will say one more thing about this: the postmortem study, as in the sharing pain and pleasure, um, it got me to think about. A component that's in the book now so the book will be hopefully um fully digital every chapter has a section called ephemera or what will later just be a section on what went on behind the scenes as i was developing the book and i think it's they're kind of mini postmortems in the sense because yeah. i share like notes from each chapter what was happening at the time as i was developing it what went terribly wrong for example if i had to make a shift into the method um, because the project started out in person and then it was completely online. So I had things to say about like audio fails and later on what it was like to go to the game developer conference in 2020. And so just showing all that sort of stuff, I think came out of a result of doing this article. So yeah, they've been kind of symbiotic, I, I would say. What's it been like doing interviews 
during a pandemic? Uh, um, you know, mixed. I think that because the entire world was placed online, there were a lot of things that, um, you know, people knew to, to maybe do like to have a, their microphone kind of set up and to give me a copy as well as my copy and things like that. Um, I found that really helpful, but I will admit like the first few months when I just had to completely shift all my interviews to online, like I didn't have, I didn't know about like screen recordings and stuff on zoom. So I was setting everything up like, you know, recording from my laptop and then feeding it into like a microphone. And so some of the, audio needed some like serious scrubbing, you know, like um, just to make sure like, you know, I could hear them like in post post-production that is. So a lot of learning curves I'd say, but I mean, later on, once I got like a pretty set set, good, you know, pretty good set up and, and knew like what the conditions were going to be. Um, I thought that worked out pretty well. Yeah. I just, I mean, I'm sure you had some similar like, so oh, yeah feels about it you're like oh man you know you just it feels flat sometimes when you're doing interviews like remotely um because as a journalist for a very long time i would always always loved if i could i could visit the person and sit down and get just get like a spatial sense of how it was working i think that like really gets taken for granted in interviews right like you just even if you're not writing a single word about their space it just like feeds into the writing process. Um, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And one of the things that I'm thinking about uh, right now is we all just kind of became freelance production assistants. <laughs> you know, True. in 2020, uh, trying to figure all this stuff out. And now it's almost not even a unique skill to have. Uh, for mm-hmm. academics mm-hmm. you know like you and i both are talking on high quality microphones uh, that's just mm-hmm. one, one example of an equipment you know and then immediately yeah. i'm just like over here like oh my goodness now we, we have to open up other conversations about access and like who actually didn't become a freelance production assistant you know and professor <laughs> during the pandemic yeah. right I, w- I will say i mean you were mentioning access if if it's okay to go down that path sure. of discussion. Um Let's do it. one of the things that I found really uh challenging at first when I moved to teaching these kind of methods and tools right. online was that students didn't have the access to those tools with because of like say processing power, for example, on a computer. Um, you know, our we before we were shut down on campus we had just started working in a brand new lab we had on campus. It was like that, you know, sort of what you imagine for a writing class, right? Like 25 computers, new ones with like the tools and so forth. I mean, we're really lucky. Like the Dean's office supported that. Um, And we spent there, we were in there for six weeks and they said, go home. So after that, I was like, you know, I don't think it's fair to say you've got to get like Adobe Creative Cloud, you've got to get like a laptop, all that sort of stuff. And really, frankly, like I didn't want them to do it anyways because they could just come to the lab and work for the day on the stuff if we wanted to use it. So really just like, there's like an interesting turning point 
um, not only how to like teach online, but just how to help students make use of like those open access tools for sounds, for video, um, all that good stuff. And I really haven't looked back. Like I do use this is sort of Adobe things, but I'm often teaching that alongside, um, you know, GIMP or uh, let's see, like Headliner I've used for making like quick sound bites, things of that sort. Um, Audacity, of course, I know it's very popular in writing studies. Uh, DaVinci Resolve, uh, all the Adobe Spark sort of things that have been coming out. You know, it's been great. Um, and we talk about too what the consequences are of having to sign up for a million different things. But they kind of think strategically about each one of those. And yeah, I just think that like you can do amazing things with open access tools as much as you can with proprietary tools. Are you getting to go back and teach in that lab this semester? I am. Yeah, I'll be there uh, this coming Monday. I'm very excited. And, you know, even with the lab, we've um, asked and have successfully had a number of open access tools installed there so you might be like doing some kind of let's say um inventing and strategizing like on something like adobe xd but you're gonna carry some of that design home and do it through like an open access program so it's yeah it's 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 been a win for everyone i think what are you doing this afternoon what am i doing this afternoon well, um, I'm in my uh, cycling shorts and I'm going to cycle home. So I, it's about uh, six miles home. So round trip, like 12, 15, if I go like a little different route. Um, I am very much like a hobby cyclist or commuter cyclist. Uh, and because I'm back on campus now for teaching two classes on Mondays and Tuesdays, um, I just said I'm going to come to campus at least four days a week, maybe five days a week, just to have that work-life balance. Yeah. One thing I think I learned from the pandemic is I just don't do well when I work from home. So I just need like a little bit of a difference um, mentally, you know, uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been great. Like I get my exercise, I get to think about my day. Um, and then when it's cold, I can jump on the subway and our subway, like, comes right to campus so it's it's perfect i think at the beginning of the pandemic i worked really well at home i don't think that i mean i know that because i was able to you know uh, pretty much just focus on working on my dissertation and finishing yeah it. yeah like yeah, I didn't, yeah i have to go to campus you know stuff like that but the last year or so like getting back in the classroom at my previous stop and then you know this new position I'm sure is playing a big role in this but I want to be on campus like I don't I don't want to work at home anymore and I'm finding it the same thing like I I can't do that anymore um so I'm probably going to be heading to campus a bit more myself yeah I mean my colleague Beth Caravella that I've been collaborating with a lot lately um you know, she came to campus yesterday and was just glowing about how excited she was to be on campus because some of our colleagues, like Beth, were hired two years ago and had never right. seen their office. And so it was like a real joy to see her and a number of other colleagues, like just, just even in passing, you know, it feels more vibrant 
it's very exciting. Um, and we're all being, yeah, cautious and doing all those really um, important things. But just even seeing somebody else or being approximate to them in some way, like, is is really cool. I hope you have a good afternoon. Thanks for chatting with me for a little bit about your uh, new piece in CNC Online, Sharing Pain and Pleasure, and, of course, your project 100 Days of Writing. Thanks so much. Yes, no problem. We're almost done with it. Um, got a couple of days left, and I hope to do it more and hope to talk to you again. For sure. Thanks, Rich. Yep. this interview with Dr. Rich Schiffner. Make sure to go and check out his Twitch channel, which features his 100 Days of Writing project. And go and check out the new works we discussed during this interview. Thanks for all you do, Rich. You know, I met Rich for the first time at Computers and Writing Conference 2022 in Greenville, North Carolina, and I think we kind of just clicked. A friendship was born. Best of luck, Rich, at York University. I look forward to seeing you at Computers and Writing in 2023 in California. As you all know, the Big Rhetorical Podcast promotes the work of graduate students through our Emerging Scholar series, and last year we launched the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellowship. That's right, we seek a graduate student to serve as the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellow for this academic year. The fellowship is through our nonprofit organization and comes with a payment of $200. This fellowship gives the fellow experience working with a leading academic podcast, connecting with scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and adjacent areas like technical communication, and gaining valuable experience working and producing in the field. The fellow assists in various aspects of running a podcast, including designing social media initiatives with the goal of growing TBR podcasts' reach and listenership. The fellow also helps with the production, including booking and interviewing their own episode during Season 8. Applications should come from graduate students with research interests in rhetoric, digital publishing, tech comm, and or social media. To apply, please send a CV and an email of interest to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com with the subject line TBR Podcast Fellow Application. Applications are due on November 30th, 2022. Please direct all questions and inquiries to the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Okay, that's it for this episode. My thanks again to Rich for joining me on the podcast. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of multiple native nations, past and present. 
These original homelands are the territory of indigenous peoples who were largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Jeff Speed. <laughs> <laughs>